Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. Today we are talking about the housing problem, and that is not just the reality in New York City, where there is obviously a long-standing and deep affordable housing problem, but it's also the name of a podcast mini-series created and hosted by my two guests today. And we have a bit of a crossover episode here among podcasters. So I am uh, very happy to be joined in just a moment by two great guests. Rafael Sestero is CEO of the Community Preservation Corporation, a nonprofit affordable housing and community revitalization finance company. And Rafael Sestero is former commissioner of the New York City Department of Housing Preservation and Development, also known as HPD. And Kirk Goodrich is president of Monadnock Development and chairman of NYSAFA, the New York State Association for Affordable Housing, a nonprofit association representing the affordable housing industry in New York State. Raphael, Kirk, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. We're excited to be here. So Raphael and Kirk have just launched this podcast miniseries called The Housing Problem. Uh, there's a few episodes already posted, so find those wherever you get podcasts or at their website. And I've listened to the first couple episodes, and I would not just say this. I really, really enjoyed them. They are really good, in-depth, substantive conversations about housing in New York City with a focus on how to solve some of the biggest problems facing the city when it comes to housing, including getting New York City anywhere close to uh, increasing the supply needed to have enough housing and affordable housing for the people that want to live in New York City and not have everybody uh, so worried about making the rent or nearly everybody and people rent burden or severely rent burden and all of the challenges around housing development, preservation, affordability that the city faces. The first couple episodes are great uh, and others will continue uh, to post. They both, I, I thought when when you guys were launching this podcast that it was just going to be the two of you talking and I would listen to that, but you're having great guests on as well. So that's, that's great. Um, so everybody can find that, but I want to dig in here with Raphael and, and Kirk about to get, get more, to hear more from them, because I listened to these first couple episodes. They're great. The guests are great. Um, but there's so much more to talk about here. And as listeners of this podcast, Max Politics know, um, I've been having some guests on to talk about a variety of things, but almost always asking people about housing because it's such an important issue. And that includes lots of city council members, state senators, uh, advocates, elected officials, and so forth. Uh, just recently on the podcast, I had the new uh, chair of the city council's housing committee, Pierina Sanchez, on the show for a fascinating discussion that was almost all about housing. So people can check that episode out of the podcast. Pierina Sanchez is an urban planner. She represents a, a low-income district in the Bronx. She has a very interesting perspective on housing and planning and so forth. Um, that is among many recent and good discussions here on the podcast. And I've also made sure when I've had other new city council members on to ask them about housing, even if we're talking about a whole bunch of other things, including the co-chairs of the council's progressive caucus uh, and, and those co-chairs, Shahana Hanif and Lincoln Ressler, both of Brooklyn. Uh, you can hear in that episode a little bit of different perspectives on, on housing from them. And it's obviously an issue that cuts across every city council district across the city in some similar and some different ways. All right. So let's get into it here, Raphael and Kirk. Um, 
give me, give me one or two things, each of you, that if you could snap your fingers and make them happen, that would actually go a long way to solving New York City's housing crisis. What are, what are one or two changes to the ways that we do business in some way, shape, or form in New York that if you could change um, and change quickly that you think would make some of the, the biggest impact on the problem here? Uh, Kirk, why don't you start us off? I think um, I think the 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 biggest challenge we have in New York um, is the the time and expense it takes to execute residential development. Um, the 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 process, whether you're talking about um, an as of right project where there's no special entitlement required. Just getting through the Department of Buildings, um, complying with you know regulations. Once you start building, uh, the the time and expense to build in New York makes it a really slow and difficult process, and an extremely expensive process for whether you're doing affordable housing or not. And I think you know um, it, it it is a real barrier. Um, to getting housing executed quickly. And for people who are coming from outside the city um, who might entertain developing here or being a contractor here, it's a real impediment. Like people, unless you're here already uh, doing it, you don't really want to be here doing it. Um, and, and, and that's a real problem that's, you know, we've had forever. Um, I think the second thing um, that I would say is, the the focus um, in the affordable world since the beginning of you know of, of my time and before till now has been strictly on creating a safety net, right? Affordable housing is a safety net for the poorest and most vulnerable um, households and individuals in a city, and that's important. But while we've been laser focused on that, you know hundreds of thousands of families over the last 30 years who are working families and, and middle-income families who couldn't afford to buy homes in the city have moved to Orange County or the Poconos or Central Jersey or Long Island. And we've hollowed out the working and middle class in the city. And so you can't have a healthy city um, and thriving neighborhoods when those kinds of families and households exit. What you're left with are folks who are really struggling to make ends meet and people who are really wealthy. Um, and the lack of diversity is never a good thing. And we have to kind of get our minds around the fact that sometimes helping people who uh, just Need, you know, who may, who may not need as much as others um, just to keep them in our city and keep them a part of our institution and the fabric of our neighborhoods is as important as helping people who are the poorest and most vulnerable. We, we just, as a community, we need to understand that. And I don't think we do. Mm. Interesting. Raphael? Yeah, I, well, I mean, um, as you'll find uh, with most things, having known each other as long as we have, Kirk and I agree on a lot of stuff. Uh, but the the thing that I would add, um, you know, is um, is that a big part of the reason why 
that Kirk's second point um, is is so important is that um, there's not enough there are not enough New Yorkers who feel that there's housing support available to them. So what's the one thing that I would do if I could snap my fingers and just make it happen? Universal rental assistance for everybody. Think about it this way. One in four New Yorkers that qualify for Section 8, the Section 8 rental assistance program today, one only one in four actually get that voucher. You have, you, you, you have to earn below 80% of median income to qualify. Um, you know, just that fact alone says that there's, you know, 75% of people that could use a voucher don't get one, right? Think, think about it. Think about it this way. One of our guests in an upcoming episode uses this as an example. The two biggest housing programs in the federal government budget are Section 8 or and, and especially when you include public housing support, um, operating support and the mortgage interest deduction. Imagine if the, and the mortgage interest deduction is available to everybody. If you buy a house, you get it. Section eight, only one in four in New York get it. Imagine if you bought a house and at the end of the year, you were, you know, you were doing your taxes and your, your tax professional said to you, oh, sorry, they, they, they ran out. You, yes, you qualify for it, but you don't get it, right? People would go crazy, right? Well, if we really want to help the poorest people in New York and the people that have the deepest housing need, we really need to do that with rental assistance. Because as we talk about in our first podcast episode a lot, the math of affordable housing is brutal. So if you make $25,000 a year working two jobs in this city, which there are a lot of people like that in this town, um, you can't afford any rent. It's, it, 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 the market can't provide that to you because why? It costs $700 a month just to keep the lights on and do the basic maintenance for a rental building. And so to me, the one thing that we miss in all of our housing policy as a city and as a country is the importance of rental assistance to be able to serve more people and help people with their housing need. Um, and I think that that actually helps a lot of the issues that we're going to talk about, because one of the reasons why the politics of affordable housing has become so difficult is because when we're doing a rezoning or a project is coming up in the neighborhood, people don't feel like they're getting any benefit from it. Mm. Right. They think Kirk is benefiting. I'm benefiting. And a handful of other people that are involved in the project that might get lucky enough to win the lottery and get the unit are benefiting, but they're not benefiting. Mm. And so it makes it very hard to build a constituency. And so I really think that, you know, if I could do one thing, it would be it would be that. And it would it would I think it would make a huge difference in the way we think about housing policy in New York. Well, if you merge that, too, with, um, you know, one of Kurt's ideas uh, uh, about just developing a lot more housing for middle income people, um, you know, you, you, you kind of could, could get, get, a, yeah. get a get a ways down uh, the problem here. And, and you know, it's interesting. I, part of the reason, you know, I had a bunch of data and, and, and such that I was looking at in preparation for this, but everybody knows there's an affordable housing crisis in New York City. I don't think anybody needs to be convinced. What what some people need to be convinced about are the solutions, are are what the answers are. Um, but just to be very very clear, there is uh, study after study that shows New York City has come nowhere clear cl- close to keeping up with needed housing development. 
per capita development of housing. And yet New York City is now at roughly 8.8 million people. And so many households are rent burdened. We have this ongoing rent emergency because the vacancy rate is so low. A lot of that housing is not in great shape. Um, and this doesn't even get to to NYCHA and public housing, which is obviously uh, in such dire conditions. Um, and it it creates this atmosphere of scarcity, of nimbyism, of real fear about displacement that is very warranted in many ways. But people don't agree on whether more housing helps or hurts. How do you convince people in New York City, especially people who are struggling, that more housing helps. I mean, that seems to be at the root of so many of these political uh, debates, the, 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 the excruciating negotiations over individual plots of land and whether yeah. a building is going to be six stories or eight stories and the exact levels of affordability for each of the units involved. I mean, it is painstaking. Kirk, you got at this in terms of the time and the expense and the hoops people have to jump through in these negotiations and people have to, uh, you know, convince community boards. They have to convince city council members. They have to do so, so much to build, you know, a building. How do you do it? What's the, what do you, how are you guys thinking about changing that conversation? I think you have to have the right messenger. I mean, the, the first lesson I learned in community development, Raphael and I worked together in East St. Louis, and I was a, a young guy in a suit presenting to the city council in East St. Louis. And what I was saying made sense, but they didn't listen to me because they didn't know who I was. When you go in front of a community um, and, you know, uh, stakeholders and elected officials um, you have to have credibility and they have to believe um, in you and have to have a reason to 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 understand what you're saying. Um, and if and if you're somebody they don't trust, then it doesn't matter. And so number one is you have to have the right messenger. Um, that's the most important thing. And two, you have to understand that changing hearts and minds is a retail endeavor is, you know, the whole idea that there's going to be, you know, somebody will emerge and and say something, uh, it doesn't work that way. I think I think what Raphael and I have learned over 30 years working in neighborhoods is, you know, to be able to sit down with people in 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 small groups and in larger groups and engage them, um, you know, and point out here's a project we did, here's the impact it had. Part of the reason yeah. we pivoted to the content. And is the is the revelation that the, a lot of the things that we want to overcome in terms of NIMBYism and people's skepticism about development um, and creating more housing can only be overcome with just consistent messaging um, and and credibility um, and, and telling our story. I mean, there's so many people in so many neighborhoods who've done amazing affordable housing, but folks don't know about it. Um, and, and so we can't wait for others to tell our story for us. We have to tell it not because we want to be famous. We have to tell it so that people realize, you know, what can happen to a neighborhood, a block, a city um, when you do things the right way. 
And, and, and you can't assume people know because it's been happening. You gotta have the right messenger and the right message. And it's a retail endeavor. It's block by block, church by church. And, and then over time, I think you change hearts and minds, but it's not a, it's not a overnight sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think that's a hundred percent right. I also think um, that we, we, we tend, because the, 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 the dialogue has become so heated and the housing issue has become so front and center in our, in our political um, discourse we tend to forget that these kinds of conversations and debates and discussions have been going on forever. You know, when Kirk and I first started in this build, business and we were focused on, you know, the, the in-rem stock that the city owned through tax foreclosure and, you know, clusters of these buildings were put together to go back, to go into a redevelopment process. The, the community board meetings were 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 just were, were just the, they were the same. There was there was a deep debate over what the housing was going to go, who was going to live there. Right? There's a big controversy in New York now around something called the community preference, because back in those days, one of the ways in which community engagement, the community um, residents were engaged in the process was that they were they, 50% of the units were set aside for neighborhood preference. So that if you stayed in your neighborhood in the seventies and eighties and you lived that there, you would be able to have, you know, sort of first crack at the units that were getting renovated through the in-rent programs. So, so these debates are not new. I think what has changed um, is that back then everybody seemed to have a, a you know a common understanding that what we were what we were fighting for was saving the city and today there's this bigger sense that you know the city is out of control and there's too many people and there's too much development and you know and and so i think i think that that's part of what is pushing a curve but the other thing that i would just add is is and i think frankly look i I think this is one of the things that I would say that in reflection, um, I would have I, I would I would hope those of us in the Bloomberg administration would think about a little differently is when you're rezoning in a neighborhood. Right. You're bringing new housing that hasn't been there forever. Right. Um, you have to focus on things other than housing. Right. You know, Yvonne Stennett talked about this in our second episode and Kirk talks about, you know, a bundle of goods that you're buying when you when you rent in a neighborhood. You got to focus on transportation. You got to focus on schools. You got to focus on services. And so I think the pressure of new development is kind of bursting at the seams in New York because we haven't invested in that infrastructure in the way that we that we needed to as neighborhoods grew. You know, I struggle with that a little bit because on one hand, of course, Obviously. And also, you know, communities don't want, uh, I don't know, a ton of new construction and a ton of new residents without saying like, hey, you know, the kids of some of these people need a school to go to, uh, you know, our our sewers need to be upgraded with more people and bigger buildings, you know, and people flushing the toilet and, you know, all that stuff. Um, But at the same time, that also that also sort of gets at this issue and, and, you know, you sort of already got at this, but this issue that housing in itself is not seen as the good, that, that housing is something to be, is a burden that, that new housing development is, is the problem. And you're sweetening the deal with all this other stuff of community investment. 
And that conversation, the way that's gone, at least the yeah. last bunch of years, makes my head spin. Um, but I think it's it's part of the problem is because the housing comes with the fear of displacement in many communities or the fear of change in other communities or the fear of um, people's home values dropping for, I don't know, you know, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but that's part of, you know, the neighborhood change. That's often the fight in wealthier communities about development. Um, So it comes baked with all these, all these fears. And to me, in part, that's, I don't know what, you know, I want your perspectives on this, but to me, in part, that is about a lack of leadership and vision from the very top. Um, We saw this huge problem in the de Blasio years where, they just pushed forward with these neighborhood rezonings in lower income communities of color that were not the right um, places to be exercising mandatory inclusionary housing, which is much more meant for uh, middle and upper income areas um, to make sure that there's affordable housing and development in those areas. Um, but without, without a citywide vision, what, how does, how should that look when we look at the Adams administration now coming in and figuring out where are they going to pursue neighborhood rezonings to, to upzone for more housing density, but also do all these other important things that we're talking about. And, and I am not at all arguing yep. those things shouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, but how should they, how should the Adams administration be thinking about this? Because on one hand, you can create an atmosphere, try to change an atmosphere where people are not fighting every single development. And, and that's point point taken there. Then you have a city administration that needs to be thinking or should be thinking, I think, holistically uh, and pursuing, you know, changes to the city zoning that, um, you know, can have more bang for the buck, so to speak. Uh, talk about sort of planning and neighborhood rezonings and and that aspect of this whole picture. Uh, I think Ben I disagree with anything I've said. No, please. no, no. I, I, <laughs> I think it, all, all good points. I think New York City is blessed with a, a really mature industry and um, um, community of neighborhood based community organizations and advocacy groups who are sophisticated, um, not just one or two. Um, and, and that's the world that Raphael and I grew up in. Um, and, you know, I think the, the, I think the thing that would serve uh, the mayor well, and I think he understands this, is to really see the various neighborhood organizations and advocacy groups that represent them as partners in his housing plan and vision. Um, I think New York has a rich tradition in every neighborhood in East Brooklyn and um, in East New York and Brownsville, it's it's East Brooklyn congregations who's been doing work since the late 70s to really transform Brownsville and East New York, Um, you know, but there are groups in, in most neighborhoods that have the, have, you know, I talked about the importance of the messenger that have the, you know, credibility, the sophistication and the vision to be a partner, a real partner of the housing agencies and the mayor and sort of fashioning a path forward. Now, um, the, the challenge is there are communities 
Um, and, and we know most of them, right? The Soho NoHo rezoning was a challenge and it's not ever easy. And in many other parts of the city, um, you know, um, you know, that are wider and middle-class communities yeah. don't want any development. And I think the truth of the matter is um, in those situations that you're not going to get the support you need, but it's really important in those situations uh, to have rezonings occur because it creates an opportunity for affordable housing in high opportunity areas so that you could have people who can't pay high rents be in good school systems, have consumer services. So there will be times, and this is where the leadership comes in, where just like in the civil rights movement, where there was opposition to many of civil rights legislation, sometimes it was majority, the majority might not have, of the population might not have approved of it. Leadership means partnering with people around a vision. And at times it means making decisions um, that are not popular, but are the right thing to do, even if the population at large don't see it that way. And in those communities that resist any kind of development, um, then, you know, there will be a fight. But, you know, conflict and confrontation is not all bad. And, and I think this mayor, what I what I admire so far and have admired about this mayor when, he, you know, back to when I saw him first when I was uh, um, in, in, in law school was like, he's not afraid of a fight. Um, he's principled and he has courage. And I think, you know, he needs to take a stand to have rezonings occur in high opportunity areas to deliver affordable housing and enable people to live where they would not otherwise be able to live. That's what he said he's going to do. So we'll see. You know, he, he said that during the campaign and, um, you know, it's going to be time soon for them to release a housing plan. We're talking here just a few days uh, after he gave a state of the city first 100 days speech. And he said in that speech, the housing plan is is coming soon. Um, we're speaking here on Friday, April 29th, 2022. Um, things can change quickly here. So that's that's where we're at right now. I will say before you jump in, Rafael, Bill de Blasio, other than. Soho Noho at the very end and going along with a, you know, helping along, going along with a, a, a Gowanus community plan that, you know, was was very, you know, uh, was was a combination of sort of community led a lot of leadership from city council member Brad Lander. Um, it, of course, the Department of City Planning involved, too. But those, you know, got done at the very end. Other than that, he didn't really try to do to do any, you know, uh, up zonings of, of any wealthier areas. And I think that's one of the big um, blemishes on his record as he tried to be, an, especially as someone tried to be who tried to be an equity mayor. City Council member Piorina Sanchez, who I just had on the show, spoke to what a bit of what you were just saying, Kirk, about the need to work with communities on developing community plans and that you get buy-in, you work with local groups who know their communities really well, and you and you work together to to create these, these yes. visions for the community. Of course, you know, eventually push comes to shove about the details and the financing. And we know, you know, there can be a big gap between a, a sort of community design plan and what, you know, the Department of City Planning might put together. But Raphael, jump in on this. I mean, you know, uh, this 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 yeah. thought or not, you know, my my sort of thinking about learning for the lessons of the de Blasio and the Bloomberg years and 
Mayor Adams coming in with his vision and where the city is now that, yes, initially he should be following through on that plan to sort of look for high opportunity areas to to rezone. But then he should also lay out a vision where he's saying, here's a rezoning we're going to work on in each borough simultaneously or something like that to create this sort of city vision and shared responsibility about community development. Housing is a good thing (laughs) and so forth. Um, Yeah. So, so I, 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 I have a bunch of thoughts. I'm sure. (laughs) sure. As you might might imagine. So the first thing I'll say, which, you know, which some people might um, consider to be a little bit, um, maybe a little bit silly, but um, but I actually think there's some truth to it, which is there was a, you know, the New York Times um, had an article a couple of weeks ago, which the headline was like, you know, can Mayor Adams cheerlead New York out of, you know, the post pandemic crisis. And when I saw that headline, my immediate reaction was, hell yes, he can. Right. Because part of what he brings to this is a sense that, you know, everybody in New York needs to be working together. Right. And and there are no good guys and bad guys. There's no there, there's no right and wrong. This is all about how does New York become a better New York and how do we make really difficult policy decisions, um, but do it in a way that everybody feels like they're they're engaged in the process. And so I think that gets to your point. Right. And and Council Council Member Sanchez is 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 one of those people that I think brings both a lived experience Right. Having grown up in in the neighborhood uh, that she's that that she's representing and being somebody who has a background in urban planning really understands the need to figure out a way to get communities engaged. And so I think that, um, you know, a, 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 a belief that everybody is at the table is is really important. And I think we've had a, a period of time where rightly or wrongly, um, People have felt like not everybody was at the table. It was, you know, there were there were groups in the Bloomberg years who didn't feel like they had a seat at the table. And there were the business community in the de Blasio years felt like they didn't have a seat at the table. And I think um, I, th- I think the Adams administration is going to try to to bring those things together. Two, two other things I would say on this point, particularly around neighborhood, you know, engagement and strategies. Um you know, Kirk and I, um, you know, worked work together um, very early in our in our careers, and as Kirk mentioned, in East St. Louis, Illinois. And one of the things that we did was work with uh, neighborhood leaders to put a neighborhood plan together for the Wynn Stanley Industry Park neighborhood in, in East St. Louis. But the one thing that that both the residents and our um, our, our uh, professor and mentor who was leading this capstone action research project uh, that we worked on said to us was, you can't just put a neighborhood plan together. You have to do things along the way. Part of how you build credibility is to actually execute. So there's this sort of, there's this, there's, there's this utopian thought about creating neighborhood plans that I don't actually think works because we can't we can't stop acting. Right. We got to keep doing things. But you have to find a way to feel like that, that that communities are engaged in a process that is both getting good things done, but also thinking bigger about, you know, about the future. And I uh, th- then the other thing I would say is, is that, you know, having been in the middle of 
when I was deputy commissioner of development um, at, at HPD, I was in the middle of both the, the Greenpoint Williamsburg rezoning uh, and the Hudson Yards and the, the West Chelsea rezonings that happened in the Bloomberg administration. Um, and, and I will tell you that a, a big part of what helped us be successful um, was advancements we made on a housing strategy in those neighborhoods. But even more important than the policy was my background and my history working with those local neighborhood groups that, and not to toot my own horn, but it's true. We had a way to engage no, local neighborhood residents that we didn't have prior to my joining the administration. And we, we, I spent numerous Saturday and Sunday mornings in people's kitchens, you know, drinking coffee and, 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 and um, talking about the rezoning in a way that helped inform a housing strategy that, that got us uh, to, to, to the finish line. And so there's both big picture ways to engage neighborhoods and then there's local ways, right? Jessica Katz, the chief housing officer um, in, the, in the Adams administration really understands this, right? She was central when she was at uh, CHPC, she was central to helping organize the process in which the Chelsea uh, Elliott Fulton Houses tenant associations at NYCHA chose the developer that is going to take them through a rad packed uh, conversion um, for those developments. The residents chose that developer. That kind of neighborhood level engagement, community engagement happening around a real project, I think, is a big part of the answer. You know, in in in, uh, in our third episode, um, you know, Congressman Richie Torres is on, and he talks about this too, about how we have to find a way to engage communities around real real action, in addition to help allowing them to think bigger about larger scale neighborhood plans. Mm-hmm. Kirk, jump back in. I feel like there's no, no, no. I think he, I think, I think we, we, yeah. we, we, Raphael covered it really well. Yeah. I want to see action. Um, the one thing I will say um, is, I think, is a detriment and part of the reason why we are where we are as a country and city around a really polarized uh, political conversation is. Um, the rest of us, whether if, if 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 I'm a plumber or a garbage man or a uh, a cop, like like all of us have to do something for a living. There's a work product, right? If you don't pick up the trash, if you don't fix the pipe, uh, if you're a reporter or producing content, then like if you don't write a story or produce a podcast for us, we got to build buildings. Raphael has to finance buildings. The, I think the biggest problem we have is that there is a we, we have an emergence over the last 40 years where elected officials can can really accomplish nothing. They can get they get glory for killing things to yeah. legislation, never accomplish anything. And they're elevated and exalted. But that's not like any of the rest of us. If you're a doctor, you got to heal, you know, you got to patch things. Mm-hmm. We all have to produce something, but we accepted a, a political class of folks who can kill kill things like Amazon. All right, I'm, I'm okay with you killing Amazon, but nobody asked the most essential question. If you think that's a bad idea, where are your 25,000 jobs coming from? So it's okay to kill that 25,000, but what we have now is um, is, is the 25,000 jobs and all the housing in Arlington 
And so what happened to the 25,000 jobs you were going to produce? Like, what is your plan B? It's not people yeah. ruling the office. And the ruling office is you're not allowed to have an opinion on any idea anybody else has, unless you, if you've done the work to come up with an idea that's at least that's as better. And, yeah, or better. And, and yeah. we allow people to get credit their entire career for killing other people's ideas and initiatives and projects and not producing any idea, initiative or project of their own. It's it's toxic. You, you know, you're getting at a couple of things that I think about a lot, which is which is one, you know, how elections get won in this city and you get, you know, a small number of primary voters who basically decide yep. the election. But also, two. And, and you guys know this better than than me, for sure. Um, but this challenge of how new development is often for. Who knows, you know, Right. It's the prospective resident. It is not. And, and this is where the community preference um, uh, formula does come into play. So you could say at least to an extent people in this, you know, some percentage of people in this community will have access to this new mm-hmm. housing. But that still feels fairly abstract to people. And as you've gotten at, people often feel like my chances are basically like playing the lottery. It is, you know, <laughs> a different version of the lottery. Um but that it's the prospective residents who are not going to mostly be coming to the meetings to, we don't know who they are. Right. You, you know, it's almost like I've heard people propose, you know, I've heard people propose do, do affordable housing lotteries before the building, you know, is going to go up. And then you have the people who are going to live in it can come to the meetings and say, I want this to happen. I'm going to get to live there. Um, you know, I don't know how that would work exactly, but um, you, you know, you get at a couple of these sort of fundamental flaws in, in, in process that are sort of democratic lowercase D, you know, issues. Um, but point well taken, you actually took me exactly where I was sort of going next, which was, you know, we talked a little bit about the importance of mayoral leadership on this, but so much of this winds up coming back to city council members the borough presidents have, uh, you know, a role. And especially if they decide to be either very anti a project or a vision or very pro, you know, they can sort of be lukewarm on things and just skate by often the borough presidents, but they have to take a stand on a lot of land use um, on land use change matters. um, Although it's non-binding. But are we, are we doing that wrong? Should there be, you know, there's a lot of mixed opinions about comprehensive planning. As far as I can tell, it's just not going to happen. It would probably take way too long uh, anyway. Um, but should there be some sort of real rethinking of the city zoning code? Should there be, you know, sort of a almost mass upzoning of the city? Should it, you know, should that whole thing be reopened in a big way? I'm just, I'm trying to think about, and I want your perspective on like, how do you sort of really change the game here? I mean, you know, the Adams administration has an opportunity early on in what is likely to be eight years um, to really rethink things. And it seems like everybody is is pretty stuck in playing the same old battles, even if there's some new strategies that come in. Is there any way to like really change the game? Is it totally reopening the city zoning? Is it working with the state on some bigger uh, you know, general project plans? Is it, um, you know, doing some sort of change around transit 
uh, oriented development that goes, you know, across the city in some big way where you're sort of up zoning around transit in, in a significant way. Any thoughts on like how to go think big here? Yeah. Um, I don't know, Kirk, you want to, uh, uh, so, uh, I guess I'll start. So I, I have a couple of couple of thoughts on on this. You know, one is, um, you know, I I do think even though it didn't end up in the budget, um, I do think the governor did take an important step in proposing her transit oriented development initiative that didn't, by the way, just focus on the five boroughs, which mm-hmm. is a big Very part good. of the reason why it didn't, didn't get passed, <laughs> but, but it's it super important out, for right? the suburbs to grow more housing, but there's almost no chance that politically that's going to happen, which is correct. Another, another right. Part. Because that's a, that, 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 that's a big, a big part of the, of an issue that we, that we never, that we never really talk about. Um, but the real thing that I wanted to just say is, you know, I, I actually, um, you know, when, when we were all working from home and uh, during the pandemic and we seemed to do nothing but work and think about work for a while, mm-hmm. I, I came up with this, what I thought was a crazy idea at the time, um, which was, you know, maybe now is time for us to think about a different way of doing individual rezonings and come up with sort of a grand bargain with neighborhoods, right? So, um, because oftentimes, you know, we, we get stuck in this member deference thing around the Euler process, where if a council member doesn't like a project, it's not going anywhere. And in my view, um, given the importance of housing as an issue for the city as whole, that gives one individual more power than he or she should have. Um, but you gotta, you gotta, you can't just say that, right? There's because there are real issues at play, right? Oftentimes, a council member, as Kirk knows better better than anybody, will will end up being against a project having absolutely nothing to do with the housing, but having to do with the jobs, who's who, who are the subcontractors, who are the contractors, um, and having to do with issues of displacement and the real urgent housing issues um, for people in his neighborhood. And so, the grand bargain that I proposed was we get rid of member deference. Um, we do a we 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 do a a a, um, a a a a residency requirement for construction jobs. It may not be a hundred percent, but maybe it's sixty percent, so that you're ensuring that people who actually live in New York City, right, coming out of a pandemic where all we had we have, we have high rates of unemployment, people in New York actually get the jobs, and then. This was at the time of Build Back Better when we thought maybe rental assistance was going to get fully funded. Then you can also offer rental assistance as a as a tool against displacement, right? Which is really the only real answer to displacement, right? In some ways, is a, a rental assistance to allow you to continue to pay rising rents um, in 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 neighborhoods, and that that grand bargain could allow us to get to a place where you know, the city council would step away from member deference and might actually allow the Euler process to go um, a little more smoothly. There's a million things wrong with it. But to me, that's the kind of ideas that we need to start to put out there to try to talk about a different way of doing things so that we get to Kirk's original point from your very first question, which is a simpler, easier way to actually execute on creating more housing. So the um, one of my colleagues, when I we started to, to to get really deep in housing policy, always forces me to take a deep breath and um, and focus on large you know macroeconomic trends. And 
Um, this happens to be, you know, Raphael and I, our colleague and, and friend, Abby Jo Siegel, who, who just got appointed as executive director of talent and workforce development. And whenever we start talking about the math of affordable housing and building more, she always like pulls the hair out and she says, you know, you know, globalization of industry, lack of, you know, good paying jobs and the jobs that exist the people in our you know, communities don't have access to. And so she sort of sees housing, having you know, spent a lot of her life in affordable housing, now sees housing as you know, a symptom yeah. um, of the larger problem, which is that we, we failed our young people by you know, how we've run our secondary schools, in our community colleges, we failed them by not equipping them and enabling them to be connected to the jobs that are out there that can help lift them up and out of poverty and into a stable economic situation. And so whenever I sort of get too deep in housing policy, I remember that um, because the reality is the economy, you know, uh, th there's so many opportunities that exist in terms of construction and sustainability, uh, technology. And I think I think from my perspective, you know, um, you know, we've spent a lot of time at Monadnock and, and our counterparts across the city, along with, you know, folks in the workforce area, really focusing on how can we get more uh, young people from underrepresented communities to to have opportunities to to be a part of this this engine we have in New York this real estate engine mm -hmm. either operating real estate or building buildings and so I think yes you know the ability to have some leadership maybe using all the public properties we have at NYCHA and all the other city and state-owned properties as a, you know, a, a jumping off point to be able to catalyze development in, in neighborhoods across. I mean, there's a lot of big ideas out there in terms of development. I, but, you know, I, I try to remember that fundamentally, you know, we have to put people in positions where they could have a better life. Um, and, and the reality is if we're able to do that, then, you know, not only you know, um, can people, you know, always get something from the government to be helpful to them. But but you know what's even better when when you have people in your neighborhood, in your block, in your family who are doing well, who could also be a support to you. And I think that doesn't exist in the way it did 30, 40, 50 years ago for many families and communities, because, you know, people's incomes aren't what they used to be um, in a city that's yeah. really expensive. That, you know, that's that's a little bit too where I started with Pierina Sanchez, a city council member from the Bronx who represents, a, you know, a very low income community um, where it's not even, you know, it's not even often about um, skyrocketing rents in her district. It's about people's wages and their income. And it's just even even rents that many other parts of the city would be dying for people who would love to have, you know, the rents in some of the parts of her district. It's still people are still severely rent burden there because it's about where your income and your wages are relative to your, to yeah. your housing. Um, 
And you know, and you know, just on that point, um, HUD just released the 2023 median income data for New York, which is calculated on a regional basis. And you, do you, do you know what the median income in 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 the New York uh, uh, MSA uh, is uh, in 2020 for for the coming year, 2023? $133,000, right? What's the median income in Councilmember Sanchez's district? Yeah, it's probably twenty-eight thousand, yeah, thirty-five thousand, something. Right. Yeah, it's 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 um, and and the reason I raise that is because that is part of the the the, the affordable housing fight. Because if you're building a project. Kirk builds a lot of projects that are affordable to people that earn 60% of median income or below, affordable too, right? But those rents, 60% of 133, now those rents are 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 are, are really high. Yeah. And local residents look at those rents and go, that's not affordable. I can't, I can't afford that. And and you know, you got it this earlier, Raphael, in terms of the call for universal um, you know, rental assistance, because if that was a known quantity um, or a given now. That doesn't solve the the, the, the macroeconomic issues, doesn't. right? And that that's a whole you know a whole another discussion. But it's obviously very tied here. But that gets back to your point about that, 100%. where at least at least you're sort of backfilling what yeah. you know ideally would be wages. Um, okay, we, we we we've got a few more things to get to here with uh, Rafael Sestero, CEO of the Community Preservation Corporation, a nonprofit affordable housing and community revitalization finance company and former commissioner of the New York City Department of Housing Preservation and Development, and Kirk Goodridge, president of Monadnock Development and chairman of NYSAFA, which is the New York State Association for Affordable Housing. They have a new podcast miniseries called The Housing Problem. And I'm very, uh, I've enjoyed the first two episodes of that. And uh, I'm really enjoying talking with Raphael and Kirk here about these issues. And they get into some of the stuff we're discussing here and a whole bunch of other stuff in um, in their podcast. And there's more episodes to come, which I haven't listened to yet and haven't been published yet. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, let's try to just touch on a couple more things. I was really, um, I was, well... I mean, I'm a little tempted to sort of stick with this question because neither of you seem to want to touch this idea of like really reopening the city zoning. And I, I find that fascinating. Um, <laughs> well, I, th- that's the problem is so. So back in 2016, <laughs> um, the de Blasio administration did a, a fairly significant overhaul. Right. The uh, ZQA zone of quality and affordability many, many months and really did some significant things with respect to reducing parking requirements, creating parking uh, requirements based on their uh, location of a project in transit zones, reducing um, the, you know, the minimum unit size was 400. They eliminated that except for senior housing. I mean, that was a major overhaul. It took a lot of time. I think it accomplished some significant things and made a difference in the amount of units we could get in 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 in, in projects. Um, and so I'm not dismissing the need for that. Uh, what I what concerns me is that almost anything of that type gets so bogged down that sometimes the time and energy you spend on executing it and what you end up at the end is so watered down and limited in scope that, you know, you take a deep breath and you're like, gosh, you know, what did we really accomplish? That's my concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
All right. You know, it was, um, it was really interesting in your first episode, you had on former um, New York City Housing Development Corporation President Mark Jar, Mark Jar and he, I think it was, he, maybe it was one of you two, but I think it was he, he who said something about, um, you know, the opportunities to upzone some major corridors in the city, like yes. along Coney Island Avenue, Northern Boulevard. Those are the two that stuck out to me because I live along Coney Island Boulevard and I grew up in Flushing uh, and Whitestone. Yeah. So I, Northern Boulevard and Coney Island, I was like, oh, <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, that sounded to me like Mayor Adams and his team find yeah. 10, 10 corridors and and put them together and upzone these transit rich corridors that are underdeveloped and uh a lot of times these corridors are now there's important community considerations. I'm not trying to gloss over that. And I really, you know, but I'm trying to think about the needs of the city here and the way that yeah. the city is stuck. And there's so many thousands and thousands of people who are struggling to find affordable housing, sort of putting that first. Um, and, and I think it was even mentioned on when he said that about how, and I know this very well from my neighborhood near where I'm sitting right now. And like I said, where I grew up and still have family in Queens, that there's lots of mom and pop uh, businesses along those corridors. This is not, uh, you know, Fifth Avenue in Manhattan or, or, you know, but but there's so much opportunity there, especially near where there's public transit. Um, so anyway, that's that just stuck out yeah, to no, me I, for first show yeah, and, and Mark- you know, gets at these questions around zoning. Yeah, Mark, I, I think, look, Mark is um, is spot on. And, you know, Mark and I, you know, used to have these these debates, um, you know, or this guy, we weren't really debating. We were agreeing when we were together in city government because, you know, you look at these corridors, Queens Boulevard is another one, right? You look at these corridors where you you could see real density happening, right? And it, there, there's a, there, and that's why I kind of said, to that New York Times article that I do think Mayor Adams can lead us through cheerleading because if he continues to do what he's doing, he builds goodwill that allows him to take on these big fights and 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 he's a messenger that can that can, that, that can get us to a place where we can have a real conversation because don't don't misunderstand rezoning Coney Island Boulevard, rezoning Northern Boulevard is is going to be a big political fight, mm-hmm. right? And, and there's a chance you don't win it. But Mark's point, which I think is the right point, is you're never going to make progress if you don't start taking them on. And I think that that's 100% where, where, where we should be going and how we should continue to try to push the envelope, because those are the places where we're going to be able to get more housing and, 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 and use the, the, the available airspace to create, to create more density and more units. The, the other thing that um, is interesting to me, I, so I, 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 would, I wouldn't shy away from a fight on uh, rezoning, um, you know, major transit corridors. But what's fascinating to me is um, the, the state of New York in the city and in, in, in the prior administrations and the current administration. So you got separate governors and separate mayors both agreed we should be converting hotels. Mm-hmm. And they capital behind Honda at the state level. And here's the thing, even things that are completely within our control, right. um, that they could execute, 
they haven't been able to do. Um, so that when you look at conversion of hotels, I mean, we already know. I'm just waiting, you know, for the next few years, you know, to see what the fallout's going to be. But we already know, uh, um, you know, people are going to work remotely in a way going forward that no one expected. You know, different estimates. I know the mayor has really been focused on getting people back to work. But the, the truth of the matter is it's become a negotiating point now where people have employers who say, oh, that guy is going to, uh, you know, that employer is going to make you show up to work while well, I'm not going to. And 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 so now you, That's right. you, you're going to have a situation where we're only gonna, we're not only going to be talking about conversion to hotels, we're going to be talking about conversion to office buildings. And 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 that can be a consequential thing in terms of delivery of housing and the regulation, which is completely within our control to be able to do folks don't have the political will or the energy to make happen. I mean, Honda was approved two or three years ago, and we've had deep conversations with legislators and folks about how to how to execute it. I think maybe there's been one hotel project that's, right. that's right. talked about. So, so I think, you know, I think while we're having the big picture conversations, I'm going to go back to the very first point I made, which is maybe the big picture rezonings wouldn't be required. If we could just figure out a path through like the that just the awful bureaucracy and regulatory environment that like we've put ourselves in, like it's it's like stunning to me that even when you have people's, you know, lives in the future, communities at risk and vulnerable populations and 45000 people in shelter, that even then. We can't cut red tape. We can't figure out how to do get things done, even without, you know, yeah. other things. The things we ought to be doing now, we just don't and want to figure out or can't figure out. Mm. Rafael, you want to jump? Yeah, I mean, I think Go that's I, I think that's totally right. I mean, look, I mean, you know, let, I, I actually it's, it's, it's interesting, right? You, you think about all these big policy things, right? But there's also a reason why, you know. The Adams administration has focused on efficiencies in, in in government, right? That's what was one of the things he ran on. It's one of the things he's talked a lot about in his first hundred days. Nobody really wants. It's not a super exciting thing to 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 talk about, but the reality is is that it takes too long to get anything done. What, what, uh, it takes what, too. Yeah, I, I mean, I sort of, I think people conceptually get that, but what's I mean, what's an example of this or what's a solution? So 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 uh, with the hotels, for example, um, the the there's a requirement that um, as part of Honda that um, there be like, a, I think, a kitchen and a bathroom in every like if you're going to convert a hotel to a residence, it needs a kitchen and bathroom in there. And so once you start tearing up these hotels to run the mechanical systems that you need, then it just becomes uneconomic. And there are other things, you know, uh, as well with the legislation. Um, but the long and the short of it is that um, there's, there's sort of pockets of resistance. Um, you know, you know, there's, there's sort of DOB things. There's uh, things related to the hotel uh, you know, union. And so that's what happens, right? There's so mm-hmm. many pockets of resistance and interest. And the f- truth of the matter is that um, everybody is sort of representing their own parochial interest. 
Um, and elected officials are sensitive to all these interests and there's inertia. Um, and, and it's sort of the analogy I would, I would draw is, which is a larger analogy about NIMBYism is sort of the, you know, um, people, as long as, you know, my kids are in a good school and my block is quiet, right. You know, and my trash gets picked up the entire city could burn down and I wouldn't care. And, and that, that I tell folks, my observation is that rich people and poor people, black and white people are more similar than you would think when it comes to this issue, that, that I come from a, a poor working class family and basically all the men in my family are tradespeople. And I could tell you the observation I make about my family is the observation I make about every neighborhood in the city. As long as you're comfortable, your kids are okay, the cat is fed, <laughs> nobody's ringing my bell, you know, my garbage is picked up, people fundamentally do not care as much about other people as you'd like to believe. Um, that's, my, that's my opinion. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, 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 and I think... Because of that, everybody has their own parochial interests. Nobody wants to sacrifice in order to make sure others get the things they need. I think that's. That- and I think that gets at one of the things, you know, I'm, I'm trying to throw into this conversation that uh, observing uh, the end of the Bloomberg years, but really mostly the de Blasio years. And then in, in concurrence, a lot of the Cuomo years and now into the Hochul years is about the importance of of the leadership at the highest levels of government creating a shared you know creating a vision working on working with communities and local elected officials to create a shared vision but really pulling that together and creating an atmosphere of a collective and then the responsibility for that not just being at the very top but also being among those other officials that get on board with the idea of communities and neighborhoods working in concert and again put comprehensive planning aside just the idea that there's a sort of citywide vision that a lot of people have to sort of pull together to execute to make it a more affordable city or a city with better schools or whatever it might be and, and feel, you know the, just the one thing i would add to this um uh, is that um bureaucracies as a general matter um aren't good at listening to people. So, you know, Kirk raises the hotel thing. There are some really, 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 so this is one of the things we're trying to do on our podcast is bring practitioners voices to, to, to the surface, because there are some really, really smart people in New York city about converting hotels. We've done this before, by the way, a lot of them, right. They have a list of things that need to happen regulator- regulatorily in order for, for, the, for the Honda funds to, to get spent. But the previous administration, some of them are state legislation, haven't wanted to listen to the experts on what needs to change in order to accomplish uh, this goal. And so I think that 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 my hope is, and I think it's you know early early stages, um, and 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 I think the 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 initial um, you know uh, experience is good. Is that is that the Adams and Hochul administrations are going to be better at listening to the experts, 
Mm-hmm. Because if 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 our bureaucracies and our leaders are willing to listen to the experts, then there's real things that can happen because change can get made. Not not to be a downer, but you know, Governor Hochul brought in the experts, and that helped her have her housing agenda that she put forward in in January, and then <laughs> basically well, because of, of political reasons, most of it got taken out by the time anything got well, passed. Well, I mean, yeah. I don't know, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know that that's fair. I mean, she got she got she got a fully funded housing plan, yeah. right? Twenty five yeah. billion dollars, yeah. right? Which yeah. is historic, historic right. numbers with a lot of really good stuff in it. She yeah, didn't we're going to four eighty five W. Yeah. And we'll see, yeah. you know, the public housing trust might actually happen. So we'll right, see. Right, right, right. Well, you just got at a couple of other things that we didn't get to. We got to wrap it up here. Otherwise, I mean, yeah, I, could yeah. talk with, I could talk with you guys for hours, but I don't think, you know, hopefully people are still listening at this point, but it's, it's a long episode. So that's all right. Uh, maybe it's two, two uh, trips on the subway or something for people. Um, but uh, I, I want to close with one more thing, but you just got at a couple of things we didn't talk about preservation trust and other things related to NYCHA I wanted to, you know, ask you about, but we won't get into it now, you know, uh, different things related to NYCHA, including infill development in NYCHA properties. Mayor Adams has talked about the idea of, okay, build new on NYCHA, but you let NYCHA residents whose buildings are falling down around them move into the new buildings. And then you build, you know, you, you, you think about other ways to, you know, build additional housing or you knock down some of those buildings and replace them. But that, that, that has to probably be reinvigorated in part of that conversation as well. Um, and then you just got at the 421A, 485W conversation at the state level, which we'll see if they do anything on by uh, the June expiration. Um, but this is where I wanted to leave it just, just, without going into a full explanation, I wanted to just see if you each had one more thing you wanted to mention as a solution to the housing problem that we didn't get to today. Is there anything else that's on your mind? Um, we, we, we went in and out of a lot of different uh, threads here and themes, um, but is there any other policy matter, financing matter, bureaucratic matter, uh, anything else you want to just throw out there as our parting words um, in terms of solving, as you guys identify with your podcast series, the housing problem. Uh, Kirk, any any one thing we didn't get to that's like a, a pet issue or thought for you? Or, or I mean, just... there's like six, but can <laughs> I, I know, continue? I a, this, <laughs> can I continue a theme? So I wrote a little piece, which uh, which is say, which talks about that we need elevators, not only safety nets in the affordable housing world. That affordable housing policy needs to be about creating upward mobility, encouraging upward mobility, equity, and wealth creation. Um, you know, I I believe that. I I believe that uh, if you have two kids in a family, and one kid is struggling and the other kid is a good student, and you spend all your time on the kid that's struggling, assuming the other kid needs no help, that's bad parenting. Um, they don't need the same thing, but the other kid who's doing well in school needs something. And, and so from my perspective, it's awful housing policy to not have a path, you know, to create upward, uh, upward mobility and wealth. And, and we should be just like there's a Section 8 program where you give people a voucher and they can rent a home in different places in the city. We should create a home ownership program where we give people a, set of, you know, a second mortgage 
And, you know, if they, if they can't afford with their own money to buy a home in the neighborhood that they grew up in, they, they can get an extra 100, 200,000 from the city and a second mortgage and be able to buy a home where they grew up, whether that's Whitestone, Corona, East Flatbush. I think there's never been a program like that. There's never been a program that enables people to buy homes where they grew up. Um, and, and I think it's done unbelievable damage to the infrastructure of our neighborhoods and our city. Interesting. Rafael, you get the last word. One more, one more topic you want to bring up or go back to something you want to say more about? Um, you know, I, I, um, first of all, I, 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 I hate having the last word when Kirk knocks something out of the, out of the park the way he just fair, did. Fair. Cause, uh, you know, he, um, he speaks from he speaks from experience. Um, you know, his mom and dad probably uh, wouldn't have been able to provide the life that, that he, they provided for his family in today's world with, you know, with the jobs that they had. And they were very hardworking, you know, uh, people. So so it's important. I, I, my last thing is going to be a plug for the for, for NYCHA and the Preservation Trust and any and all good ideas. It is unconscionable in this city that 400,000 plus residents live in the conditions that they live in. This is a great example of people picking you know this is this is bad and this is good there is no such thing when it comes to fixing NYCHA there's only good whatever tool we can use we need to use it's it's just not okay um, that uh, that that people live in publicly funded housing um, in the conditions uh, that 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 NYCHA residents experience so I hope there's momentum now on the positive sitting here April 29th towards the public housing trust um, I'm hoping that 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 people really come around to understanding that we need more tools, not less. Mm. All right. Well, good way to end it with those two uh, very interesting and, and provocative thoughts from both of you. This has been a great discussion. Thanks for thanks for hanging out for so long, uh, Rafael Sestero. Thanks for, for good. Th- thanks for spending an hour on affordable housing. Thank you. I really can't tell you how important that is. Thank you. Yeah. No, it's my pleasure. You know, this show started um, with my co-host Jarrett Murphy, who is the editor of City Limits, and we yeah, actually yeah. started it way back as this. Like we tried to do. 20 minutes a week only on housing because city limits covers housing so closely. And, and of course, you know, at Gotham Gazette, we cover housing sporadically. Um, and we started it focused on housing because of how important it is. And then it, it grew from there, but, um, but it's always, it's, I mean, it's so important. So it's, it's my pleasure. Uh, Rafael Sestero, Kirk Goodrich, they are very experienced in housing and affordable housing, as you've heard, and they have launched a podcast mini series called the housing problem. As I said, at the top, I've listened to the first couple episodes and they're really interesting conversations and there's more to come. Thank you both. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Appreciate it. Thank you.